Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Reading University Research Fellow Stuart Roberts will discuss the decline of bees and its effect on the environment. The lecture aims to present evidence of both the status and trends of bees, the likely drivers of change and the possible long-term effects. Firstly, I'd like to uh, thank the organisers of this uh, series for giving me an opportunity and a platform to be able to talk to you a little bit about bee decline. Uh, It is a topic that is much in the news at the moment, and um, in fact it even got a mention, albeit a somewhat erroneous one, on Autumn Watch last night, courtesy of the sainted Kate, Kate Humble. Some of you may even have seen it. The question is really... I put the question mark after catastrophe. Do we actually have a problem? Is there a problem? If so, how much of a problem? And I'm going to take you through this uh, with uh, through a number of stages. Firstly, a a basic introduction. I'm just going to give a very quick overview of where insects and hymenoptera, how they're divided up, and where bees actually fit into the grand scheme of things. Some of you may know this anyway, and please um, forgive me if you do, but. It's important, I think, just to set the scene a little. In the eyes of many people, including uh, including, uh, our Autumn Watch friends, for them, bees mean honey. But actually, as I hope you will see in the course of the presentation this evening, that that isn't necessarily so. Then the issue of decline itself. What is it? And then a very brief thing about what people think they know, and this is before I launch into the dealing with the questions themselves. So let's start off. Bees are in the uh, uh, insect order Hymenoptera, uh, one of many, many insect orders. It's a very large one, and they diverge from the uh, uh, general tree sometime at the in, about the time of the Permian Carboniferous Uh, junction, which is about 300 million years ago. And a very rough phylogeny of of the Hymenoptera itself, very very straightforward here. On one side we have the Symphyter, as you can see, sawflies, I'm sure most of us are fairly familiar with these things, chomping up our plants in our gardens. And on the other side, the other group, the ones with a wasp waist, and they're divided into two groups, the parasitica, which includes ichneumons, colcids, gall wasps, and all sorts of things like that. There's a picture of one that's about three millimetre long, metallic red one there on the bottom right. And, whoops, I think it's pardon. I need to go to the previous one. Bees, social wasps, and various, and some other parasitic wasps in the group Aculeata. The Aculeata are the ones which have a clear aculeus or sting, and which is a modified egg-laying tube. Just, again, to have have some idea about how many species there are, I thought first it would be an idea to have a look at what's happening here in the UK. We have one species of honeybee, good old Apis mellifera. This is the species that when you talk about bees to, to many people, this is the species that immediately springs to mind. This is, in the minds of many people, the bee. However, if you were to go and try and download some clip art from the uh, internet, uh, their idea of a bee is rather different, and it probably will look something like this. 
which is a bumblebee, of which we have somewhere in the region of 25 species here in the United Kingdom. I'm not prepared to be particularly precise here because uh, certainly at least two of them have become extinct that are on the, on the British list, and a third one might never really have been here in the first place. It's a somewhat dubious provenance, known from just two records from 1860, the specimens of which do not exist anymore, and um, its presence here is somewhat dubious. Add to that the unknown, the forgotten group, we actually have 240 other species of bee in the United Kingdom as well. Most of these will mine their nests in the ground. Others will nest in hollow twigs or in uh, things like snail shells. And also about 20% of them are actually parasitic. And this is an example of a parasitic one here. And by parasites, I mean brood parasites. These behave like cuckoos. They don't do any foraging themselves. They have no pollen-collecting apparatus. They rely on a host bee to do the foraging, and then they lay their eggs in the host bees' nests. If you were to expand your view and have a look at things worldwide, there are nine-ish species of honeybee worldwide. Again, I use the term uh, loosely here because it depends on where you draw the species boundaries. Some people will say there's about 15 or 16 species. Others will say about five or six. But the latest um, literature I have indicates nine seems a pretty good um, uh, a pretty good position to stick on. Uh, this one here is uh, the giant Indian um, uh, honeybee, Apis dorsata. If anybody's ever been to India, you won't miss this. It's about the size of a hornet. Um, and they nest on cliffs and exposed nests. Worldwide, there are only 250 species of bumblebee. They're mainly cold-adapted things. This is a species that I think called Bombus mesomelas, which occurs in the montane regions of um, Central and Southern Europe and occurs uh, further east as well in, and into Turkey. And the figure now is the one that usually surprises people. Somewhere in the region of 19,500 species of, of other bee, which includes spectacular things like this uh, beautiful metallic orchid bee, a euglossine. These are characteristic um, of the neotropics. In Europe, we've probably got about 2,250 species. Size. Hmm. I thought I'd stick a bumblebee in here just for uh, something that was familiar. The least carpenter bee is probably the smallest bee in Europe, or certainly one of them. It's at about four and a half millimeters long. That is gigantic compared with the smallest bee on the planet, a species of Perdita, North American thing, which is about two and a quarter millimeters long. That's the biggest one in the world, Wallace's giant mason bee. This, was photo this series was photographed in the University Museum at Oxford. That is actually Wallace's specimen, the specimen that Wallace himself caught. It is the type specimen of this particular bee. It's an extraordinary thing. It's uh, on the um, world red list and is associated, it's a communal species living in termite nests and occurs on, I think, three islands in the Malacca group in Indonesia. The spectacular thing. Um, and wasn't seen from the time that Wallace caught this one until about 1973 when it was rediscovered by Adam Messer. So the issue, bee decline. Well, I'm sure you've got to be pretty unobservant if you haven't either read or heard something about bee decline. It hits things like the National Geographic, 
and such learned things as the Western Morning News, Le Monde, Times of India, The Independent. It's just about everywhere. However, not everybody agrees that there is a problem on the scale that has been talked about. And Jaburi Ghazul, writing uh, three years ago uh, in uh, uh, Trends in Ecology and Evolution, questioned the whole buzziness of it all. Now, many bee people get quite upset by this sort of article. To be perfectly honest, although it is quite upsetting that there's anybody who disagrees with it, actually it does help keep us scientists very honest, and we have to get out there and search for the evidence. And what we have to do is to work out and separate between what are regarded as well-known facts and what are merely widely held beliefs. And I'm sure we'll know that we, as scientists, we have to work uh, with fact and evidence rather than mere belief. I thought it might be quite interesting just to see how aware the public seem to be of bee decline. And as a, a very crude and dirty method here, I just typed in a number of things into my search engine on my computer and just see how many hits I got for them. And I thought, well, Bath City Football Club, should you be a devotee, you're likely to find somewhere in the region of quarter of a million hits, which mentioned Bath City Football Club. If you prefer a different shaped ball, you would find somewhere in the region of half a million hits. Butterfly decline, somewhere in the region of a million. But bee decline, somewhere in the region of one and a half million hits. So there's definitely awareness out there. So, the basic questions. Are these declines in bees actually real? Are they what people say they are? Do they affect all bee species? Or is it just some? How widespread is decline, if it occurs at all? What on earth's causing it? Who cares? And can we do anything? And I'm going to go through these various issues during the course of the presentation and try and address them. I'm going to deal with the first three as a chunk and have a look at whether we consider these bee declines are actually real and not just anecdotal. There's no doubt that people are saying these declines are real and then you ask them for their evidence and they actually haven't got any. Honeybees. Now, I rather naively thought when I started work on the Alarm Project uh, four years ago that getting the information on honeybees would be a complete doddle because they're a well-organized group. There's, uh, we're only dealing with one species. There are beekeepers associations. They have a very important role in, uh, for providing honey and in pollination. How wrong I was. The reason for this is that the data which we need to be consistently gathered is not consistently gathered. Also, there is no discussion on how colonies are moved around to supply the demands of pollination, so you don't always know where they are. When you have people selling honey by the roadside, like this young chappy here in Tunisia, 
you can see that actually keeping tabs on who's doing what can be a bit of a problem. I've also discovered that when I ask, uh, I, I don't usually get a problem when I'm speaking in beekeepers groups, how many of you keep bees? They all put their hands up and said, oh yes, we do, we're very proud of it. And how many colonies have you got? They immediately think that you're from the inland revenue. <laughs> and they become very evasive, <laughs> or at least some of them do. The Germans have got around this problem quite neatly by making the regi- registration compulsory, but it's handled by trading standards, which means that when, you're, when you register, you, uh, which you pay a fee for, you get your honey tested for pesticide residues and you can have your hives inspected, and then you get some little um, barcoded sticky tags to stick on your honey, which have to be on there for it to be, to be sold legally. And then anybody can just come up and read it and check that the information on there tallies with who you say you are. Um, and the tax people, so the Germans would tell you, don't get their hands on this data, although I have my doubts. If you want to go somewhere where there are very neatly gathered uh, statistics, our Swedish colleagues are absolutely superb at this. They are very, very good at gathering uh, information, and they do so regularly, absolutely every year. Registration is compulsory, and they're using exactly the the same data gathering uh, techniques as they used to 70, 80, 90 years ago. And so we've got a really fantastic picture It's interesting, actually, to say, well, are honeybees declining in Sweden? Well, it depends where you start your assessment. If you say 1920, the answer is no, they're exactly the same, although there have been a little few oscillations, including World War II, which, amongst other things, was clearly a sugar crisis in Sweden, and also the arrival of the varroa mite, which uh, is a um, parasitic mite affecting honeybees, and uh, also a, a vector of various diseases. That has caused a huge decline. But it does at least, this method does at least allow us to monitor long-term trends. Well, we've tapped into a number of um, sources, and we've managed to get the first serious attempt to do this on a European basis here, looking at trends of bee colonies. And there's been a 23% decline in colony numbers in Central Europe. That's this sort of large block across the middle here from Britain through to Slovakia. The situation in the Mediterranean is slightly different, and also in Ireland and Finland. I'm not terribly energised by the situation in Finland, because I think if you had another 20 beekeepers, it would show, it would give you a 20% increase, because beekeeping is not particularly easy in Finland. It's not exactly ideal for bees. Uh, The situation in Ireland I found quite entertaining. I spoke to the president of the Irish Beekeepers Associations and said, how many beekeepers have you got in Ireland? And he cheerfully told me between two and 4,000, which I pointed out were not the sort of statistics I could work with comfortably. Um, I feel the increase in Ireland is almost certainly due to an increase in number of people registering uh, because they get good advice on, on disease management and pest control um, once they're registered, which is not available to unregistered beekeepers. So I have a feeling that there's a lot of noise in here, and the various countries haven't necessarily collected the data the same way as other countries. However, within a country, there's almost con- certainly some sort of consistency in data gathering. This um, paper uh, is... I, I'm one of the co-authors on this, and hopefully we'll be hearing some news from the editors of Apidology. They've had this for four months now, and we haven't had so much as a buzz out of them, but we're rather expecting they, they will come up with something fairly shortly. Now, solitary bees... So there are clearly declines in in honeybees, although it's a bit patchy, the picture. 
with solitary bees, we've asked a number of questions. Is the richness of bees changing? And we've only been able to get hold of really good data from the UK and from the Netherlands. This is all amateur-generated data. And we made comparisons between pre-1980 and post-1980 in order to see, well, that's as it used to be. This is how it is now. What, what are we seeing? Increases and decreases. And we did this using 10 by 10 kilometer grid cells, which are the standard recording grid cells used in biological recording in UK. And we only used those which had good matching past and present data. We also asked whether the species composition were, the compositions were changing as well, using the same data sets, whether they were recorded more or less often, particular species, and are they encountered in more or fewer grid cells? Where on earth did we get the data from? Getting hold of this data is not straightforward. In the UK, luckily, it's pretty easy. The Beeswas and Ants Recording Society database, we worked on about 136,000 lines of bee data. I think if we were doing this starting now, we would probably have half as many again to play with. There's been a lot of new data added in the last four or five years. Literally, hundreds of amateur recorders have put information into this, into this pot here. In the Netherlands, it's very similar. Amateur-generated data through the European Invertebrate uh, Survey. And uh, our uh, colleagues, uh, Menno Reimer and Theo Peters, have managed to get a huge gang of people over there working uh, to provide us with the data. Similar data sets are available in some other countries, although getting access to them is, well, has proved impossible. Although having done this particular piece of work, other people are really now kicking themselves a little bit and rather wish they had been involved. So the UK richness change patterns here, I don't know whether that, oh yes, you can actually see that on some um, projectors, you just see a little blur of pink and yellow and you don't actually see the outline. That's a digitised outline of, of, uh, of uh, England and Wales. And this is showing rough patterns of change here where the red end shows decreases and the darker the red, the greater the decrease. And once you get to yellow, where you've got stasis or increases. And you can see that we've got a bit of a mixed pattern. But the basic story is that there are more cells where you are, have a loss of richness than cells where there is a gain. And the situation in the Netherlands is remarkably similar, although perhaps even more startling. And I think if you consider the agricultural systems in the Netherlands and the size of the place, when you intensify agriculture in the Netherlands, it intensified over pretty well the entire country. And so the position of decrease was even more stark than it is here in UK. The map on the lower right-hand side there is just a distillation of the other one put into slightly more digestible-sized uh, blocks and perhaps slightly easier to see. So no doubt that there is gain in some, but the numbers of grid cells in which the, there was an increase in richness was well outweighed by the number of cells in which there was a clear decline. When we looked at species, I thought we'd just pull out one of our raw data sets here looking at uh, bumblebee species. That's the situation of bumbles in UK. The red indicates bad news, green for increases. In the Netherlands, you'll see that the situation is one of unremitting gloom. So what conclusions were we able to draw from our work? Well, diversity, a clear decline in diversity 
in the cells we were able to study. And as far as the species were concerned, there were more losers than winners. And we also had a bit of a look at traits. Specialist bees tended to decline more rapidly than generalists. And these might be habitat specialists. They might be pollen forage specialists. There are a number of solitary bees that forage at only a very, very narrow handful of plants, say, for instance, bellflowers, or uh, some that will go um, for yellow loosestrife or something like that, and nothing else. So those ones tended to show decline more than those that were happy to forage on just about anything. And by slow species, we're talking about ones that go through their life cycle once in a year. They, didn't, it, the, the, they were more prone to decline than those species that had two whizzes through their life cycle in a year. I think having two shots at it every year gives you a second chance of dispersal and to make up any shortfalls earlier in the year. We published our results in science a couple of years ago. We were very lucky, I suppose, to even get the cover of the, of, of the publication. So... And this paper has been very widely cited now. As the, I mean, anybody who goes out and does any bee research, they tend to cite this paper because it gives them a, a reason for going out to look to see whether the declines are the same where they are. So let's just have a quick summary then at this stage. Are the bee declines real? Well, yes, they are. Do they affect all bees? Well, yes, if you're looking at bee groups, they certainly don't necessarily affect all species. There are clearly some winners, but they're heavily outnumbered by losers. Does the decline occur everywhere? Well, everywhere we've looked. For honeybees, there's a broad picture in the US, and there's much more information on honeybees over there. Uh, they haven't looked at solitary bees in the way we have because they just simply don't have the data to run the analyses. We would love to be able to expand our work and include other areas. We're hoping we can encourage other people to come and join us or to run their own um, analyses and compare their data with ours. I think we need to have a look now at the various things that might be driving this decline. And again, I'd like to start with honeybees. There are a whole range of, uh, of suggestions. I'm often having to fend off the press who've written a story about some horror story, about some nonsense, uh, as a driver of honeybee decline. Is there any truth, Mr. Roberts, that this is causing honeybees to decline? Well, car exhaust fumes binding to the fragrance molecules of flowers, which enable, stops bees from detecting them, <coughs> so the story goes. No, no real evidence that that's responsible for widespread decline. Mobile phones that get blamed for pretty well everything as do mobile phone masts. I've been asked this one dozens of times. Um, a, a, a piece of work was done in Germany which was completely unscientific. It didn't use enough replication. was done using entire base stations inside beehives, and, which is a totally unrealistic thing, and people have extrapolated from that that if you wave a mobile phone around, you're going to kill the bees, which is a bit, bit far-fetched, perhaps. Uh, another uh, usual suspect uh, is uh, high-tension uh, uh, electricity cables. Uh, apparently, the magnetic fields disorientate the bees and they can't find their way home. Again, there's no evidence for this at all, but it uh, makes a nice story. Then we get... Uh, <laughs> he's been cited as being responsible for bee decline. Quite how he's done it, of course, is not uh, immediately abundant, uh, abundantly clear... 
And then we have the slightly more bizarre. This is one that I heard from one of my colleagues in the United States who could hardly control his laughter when he told me about this. He'd been told that the bees had been raptured up to heaven as a sign of the impending end of days and Armageddon, which is an interesting thought and quite difficult to test. (laughs) Unless the election goes the wrong way next week, perhaps. However, the real drivers of decline are clearly multifactorial. There's a number of things, which may well include a variety of stressors. Migratory beekeeping. We have no real experience of this in this country, but I can tell you in America, shipping beehives around is big business. In Central Valley, in California, every February in the almond pollination time, two-thirds of all the honeybees in America are in Central Valley, and they come from as far afield as the East Coast. They're shipped there. Bees don't particularly like being moved around those sort of distances by truck any more than we would. Large monocultures of fields. Here, oilseed rape, canola. In America, vast areas of America, it's wall-to-wall canola or wall-to-wall soya. The bees have a very poor diet, and like us, if we just get fed a single monotonous diet, we could become a bit fractious and perhaps a little bit more prone to uh, illness. Pesticides and herbicides, also serious uh, problems with these. Exposure to things like neonicotinoid Um, chemicals which have been certainly very prominent in decline in France. They've actually banned one last year, and the Germans banned one briefly this year. If you add to that various parasites, like Varroa, this is Varroa on the left-hand side here, which is uh, a mite. Um, It's superbly designed for attacking bees and killing them off. In the centre, small hive beetle, on the right, tracheal mites. These can act as vectors of a variety of diseases, Things like black queen cell virus, cashmere, bee virus, deformed wing virus, and Israeli acute paralysis virus, all of which are implicated in colony collapsing. Between them, they might well lead to the dreaded colony collapse disorder. Colony collapse disorder isn't a disease in its own right. It is a set of symptoms of a number of pathogens. I'm always being told we have CCD in this country. My beehives have disappeared. We've got CCD. No, we don't necessarily have CCD. In fact, there's no evidence that it's here according to the set of symptoms that the Americans have published. And another thing in America that made life difficult to assess numbers accurately is this became a federal emergency. So anybody who'd lost any honeybees, even if Yogi Bear had gone in and eaten a colony, they would have put their hands up and said, yeah, I've got colony collapse disorder, and they get a big bucket full of federal dollars. So assessing the true picture in the US has been quite tricky. As far as other bees are concerned, 45% of all bee species in Europe have been listed on various threat lists, and there are clearly certain traits that are linked to decline. These are the ones I mentioned earlier uh, when we're talking here particularly about things um, like Uh, habitat decline, uh, but also for the bees themselves, specialisation. The more specialised you are, the more prone you are to decline. And the expert opinion across the continent seems to identify the major primary drivers of decline. And with the UK, and this is very, very similar, from Estonia to Slovenia, from Ireland through to Slovakia, where we've got data, 
we're getting pretty much a similar pattern here. Habitat loss, of which there are many uh, things that may cause that, from infrastructure development, changes in agricultural practice, and so on. Intrinsic factors, things that are basically rare anyway, they're always going to be threatened simply by their basic rarity. Changes in host plant dynamics or hosts for the parasitic bees. And climate change has been a bit of a, a small problem and may well be an increasing problem, particularly for those bees that are associated with either extreme maritime conditions or alpine and montane conditions. I thought you might just like a quick look, just when we're talking about habitat loss uh, and, and fragmentation, I thought I'd just show you a couple of slides here. Just have a look at these two roads here and that junction. This is a, a Bournemouth airport, it's just about here. <laughs> and um, this says, this, I didn't think I'd horrify you too much, this says gibbet fur, and there's a nice little gibbet marked on there. That's the situation in 1811. That's uh, the same place uh, a couple of years ago, and you can see these two roads here in exactly the same position. And you see there's a bit of, uh, bit of development there. And uh, if you were to go around the Dorset Heaths, you'd see that that was very widespread. So what effect does this have? Bee diversity decreases as semi-natural habitat is lost. This is work done by Birgit Meyer in uh, the University of Göttingen in Germany. Very clear uh, correlation there. I haven't even bothered putting on the values on here because uh, it's such a clear positive correlation there. And bee abundan- the abundance of bees will decrease as the habitats become more fragmented and more isolated from one another. This is work that I'm, I've been working on with uh, my colleague uh, uh, Simon Potts. Another problem, possible problem here, the protozoan Crithidia spilling over from commercial bumblebees into wild po- uh, populations. You may be unaware that this country imports 50,000 commercial bumblebee reared commercial bumblebee colonies every year into the greenhouse trade. Uh, and these are reared in Slovakia, and they're all imported, technically speaking, illegally, because they're of a, species, uh, of a subspecies of a bumblebee that we don't have in this country. In the United States and in Canada, they're very worried about this because a number of bumblebees, including Bombus aphanis, Bombus aphanis 25 years ago used to be one of the most abundant bumblebees in the whole of eastern uh, Canada and the eastern US. It's now virtually extinct. And they're absolutely convinced, the researchers at the University of Guelph are, and York University in Canada are absolutely convinced that it's caused by this, which is a European thing, which has made its way out to Canada courtesy of the uh, commercial bumblebee trade. It was interesting, I was at a talk uh, in Iowa, University of Iowa, Iowa State University last year, where this was discussed, and um, the commercial breeders were present, and they had an opportunity to refute this and to talk about their biosecurity, and they, the silence was one of the most telling silences I think I've ever heard. We do have people like the Xerxes Society in the US who are flagging these up and trying to bring these to the attention of Um, growers. However, the pathogens of wild bees are certainly poorly understood, but they're very likely to be important regulators. Climate change. Well, climate change has been used for a couple of things. One, to explain how we've got to where we are today, and secondly, to project forward into the future. We've done a little bit of work on this, myself and some colleagues, looking at climate envelopes. So, for instance, uh, we've got a, a, a Boreo alpine species here. This is the current climate envelope. This is what various climate models are showing us it's going to be like. And you can see we're going to have big disjunctions up here. The alpine stuff's going to be 
reduced to practically nothing, and if things continue like that, they'll just be forced off the top of the mountains. So we worked using six species for which we had good data. Five of those six had much more isolated populations, which caused them risk, and three, of three which included the one that wasn't in the, covered in the, in the first five, showed range contraction, and therefore all of them are likely to have an increased extinction risk. Okay, so there are declines. Who cares? What does it matter? What can we do? Well, some people that care, beekeepers and people who depend on beekeepers, farmers for pollination, strawberry-eating public at Wimbledon would definitely be worried if there was a decrease in pollination. And Messrs. Hagen Das, who provide apparently some quite delicious ice cream, they're actually sponsoring bee research now in the US because they've got very worried that the things that flavour their delicious ice creams are all bee-pollinated. So the impacts of decline, what are they? Well, we've had a good look through the literature and done some standardised experiments, and we've all borne in mind the fact that we've also demonstrated a loss of natural habitat can lead to a loss of pollinators and maybe a loss of production. So we've had a bit of a look at that, and some evaluation on the economic value. Insect pollination worldwide, 153 billion euros a year. Now that is makes the sort of money that some of our county councils have lost in Icelandic banks look like very small potatoes indeed. 84% of crop species in Europe rely on insect pollination, of which honeybees contribute about 4.25 billion, and other bees three quarters of a billion. It's quite a lot of money. And what might the impacts be? Well, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the take-home message is here. These are the various crops, the UK production value in millions of pounds per year, the insect pollination value, depending on what crop species are there and what the pollinators are, insects contribute £115 million out of that. So we get a total figure here. These are the various risks. So our fruit, which is that divided by... That, I think we're going, to get, we're going to get a picture here, that's 48% of that. What we're having here is a figure of £213 million pounds, uh, per annum attributable to insect pollination. If you had a 50% loss in pollination service, you can cut that figure in half, and that would leave our agricultural industry £106 million pounds a year the poorer. Now, these figures tend to make people sit up and take notice, I had a gentleman from DEFRA practically disappeared through the roof when he saw that a couple of weeks ago. Also, potential losses, various... Looking forward to what might happen if you lost insect pollination, you've got a very serious loss of potential uh, income in these countries here, which are Austria and Slovenia, which depend very heavily on fruit. Uh, in the more pastoral countries of Europe, perhaps the losses would be less, but they're still significant. We mustn't forget the basic biodiversity value. 
80% of wildflowers rely on animal pollination, and 62% of flowering plants that have been looked at show pollen limitation. And what that means is that they don't produce as many seeds as if they're hand-pollinated. So there is a deficit in pollination, and there are lots and lots of studies that show that. So, it all sounds pretty grim, and what can be done about it? Well, the government can do a whole stack of things. They can tweak and play around with agri-environment schemes through uh, DEFRA, and there's an example here of a a clover-rich margin, which was absolutely chock-a-block with bumblebees, including some rare ones. This is in Hampshire. They could perhaps decide to initiate some sort of monitoring programs, which are very much in their infancy at the moment, but they're, they're thinking about it. They can certainly invest in sound science, uh, which is the British Beekeepers Association's uh, regular call. And they can also work on developing conservation action through biodiversity action plans. And they can raise awareness. The Americans actually pu- published this lovely set of stamps for uh, National Pollinator Week last year. Um, these sort of things really do raise awareness. In America, pollination, everybody knows that bees are for pollination. Over here, most people think bees are for honey. Other funding. Well, government via various research councils and ministries. BBSRC, NERC, and obviously DEFRA have quite a lot of input into these things. Industry, Syngenta involved in this. Various foundations, such as the Wellcome Trust, they've shown an interest in this and actually called a meeting three weeks ago to discuss uh, bee disease and bee decline, whether it's the sort of thing they might be interested in, biomedical research. And also NGOs and the RSPB, uh, they don't just... uh, play about with birdies, they're actually very interested in whole habitat management. There's been a big change in the last few years, and they're actually joint lead partners on some bee conservation through the Biodiversity Action Plan. They've put quite a lot of money into it. What can we do as individuals? Well, we can make our gardens a bit more bee-friendly. We can plant things that bees like, so we can stop planting things with double flowers and plant things that actually produce nectar and pollen. And we can actually make little homes for bees. This is a bee hotel. This is the Ritz Bee Hotel on the side of my house. It was just smaller, just small enough to avoid having to have planning permission. (laughs) And has been well visited this year, a variety of stem and hole nesting bees. And also there are various uh, bumblebee uh, nest designs available. Although I have to say that bunging that bumblebee nest out in the garden almost inevitably is fruitless. Um, It's not like putting a bird nest box up and they don't work so well. However, there are ways suggested, and this is an American group led by Marla Spivak at uh, Minnesota State University. She really does know what she's talking about, and the techniques um, shown in this sort of book here are really very good, and they can work and do work. And finally, what you could do is you could join one of the amateur groups involved with monitoring populations. I'm not going to go through all of these various things. This is the one I happen to chair, so unsurprisingly I'm going to uh, toot the trumpet for that one mainly mapping the fauna, producing profiles and advising conservation agencies. And we also have very good, strong links with similar, like-minded people uh, across the continent. Also, there are outfits like the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, very new. Uh, They do work with us in bee wars. They're largely impetus in Scotland, but they're developing. They've got quite a strong uh, research profile behind them. Um, But, as I say, they're very new, and they they don't know quite as much as uh, as they would like yet, but they're getting there. And Bug Life, which deals with 
uh, invertebrates in the round, but they also have an interest in bees as well. And they actually ran a, a thing called All Abuzz in the Thames Gateway, which is a project which was going on last year, uh, with uh, mixed success. I mean, there were, there were some definite successes there, but it wasn't an absolutely total success. So, various conclusions. Yes, bees are in decline. These declines are well documented, they are real, and they're supported by good, strong scientific evidence, which is the only evidence that counts. The drivers of decline <coughs> are many and varied, depending on species. The effects of pollinator loss could be absolutely huge. So is it a catastrophe? Not yet. But it could be. On the positive side, we are aware of the problem. Awareness is being raised all the time. And people are taking action. That, before one can fix anything, you've got to recognise as a problem. And that, at least, is being done. Very briefly, as it is my very pleasant duty, I need to thank my uh, colleagues and partners, of whom there are very, very many. And most importantly, I have to fund the guys who, uh, thank the guys who pay my wages. Thank you. Thank you.